Our text this evening, short as it is, has been the source of some important contention in Christian history, so my comments on it as we read it will be somewhat lengthier than usual. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. The word translated suffering here is a form of the same word used in verse 10 of chapter 5 to describe the afflictions of the prophets who suffered persecution on account of the message they preached. The first antidote to affliction in a Christian's life is prayer. Remember when the Lord was weighed down by his burdens, as in Gethsemane, we read that he prayed more earnestly. Prayer may not remove the suffering, but it can certainly transform it. On the other hand, if a Christian is enjoying happy circumstances, James here isn't thinking about cheerfulness in adversity, but the absence of adversity, let him or her remember where his gifts come from and acknowledge the goodness of the Lord. In this way, neither the happy things nor the sad things of life will take us away from God. Calvin put it beautifully, there is no time in which God does not invite us to himself. Or, as another put it, by prayer or conversation with God, we are to hallow every pleasure and sanctify every pain. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, you may be aware that Roman Catholics regard this verse as teaching the sacrament of extreme unction, one of the seven sacraments according to that church. Unction is a word derived from anointing, and especially anointing with oil. And extreme is simply Latin for the last anointing. In that ceremony, the priest anoints the eyes, the ears, the nostrils, the hands, and the feet of a sick person considered to be in extremis, that is, on the point of death, in the belief that such oil, previously consecrated, is an effective medium of forgiveness in the case of those who are no longer able to make conscious confession of their sins and receive priestly absolution. In the Douay version of the Bible, for long years the official Roman Catholic English translation of the Bible, is found this footnote to James 5.14. See here a plain warrant of scripture for the sacrament of extreme unction that any controversy against its institution would be against the express words of the sacred text in the plainest terms. The Council of Trent in 1545 pronounced an anathema or a curse on anyone who denies that extreme unction is properly a sacrament instituted by Christ, promulgated by the blessed Apostle James, or that the elders to whom James refers are not priests who have been ordained by a bishop. Interestingly, in the Douay translation, it is the priests who are to be called for, not the elders, 
as the Greek text has it, even though the Latin Vulgate from which that English translation was made also had elders, not priests, in the translation of James. Now, I don't want to spend a great deal of time on this, but let me say this much. The verse can hardly bear the weight the Catholic Church has placed on it. First, the prayer that is being offered is explicitly for the person's healing and in hope that the sick might be restored to health. That's clearly the sense of the words, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. As you know from the gospel accounts of the Lord's healing ministries, the word save and the word heal is the same Greek word. Nothing is said here at all about the person being about to die or that the prayer is for a person who is dying or that it has uh, the um, ritual has something to do explicitly with the forgiveness of sins. Second, James does not invest this ministry in one man but in a group of men, the elders of the church. He's not talking about that sort of ministry that belongs only to those who officiate the sacraments. James says nothing at all about Roman, what Roman Catholics would think to be the special powers and responsibilities of priests. Quite the contrary, the elders are in view, and for James, who was a Jew and who was writing to Jews, the term elders, especially in the plural, would certainly include men whose calling uh, was not to officiate worship. The Jewish elder was not a liturgical officer per se. To speak of the elders was to speak of the leadership of any and every local church or congregation. Men who, it is supposed, would be men of prayer, the kind of men you would want praying for you. Third, in the next verse, James will tell us to confess our sins to one another. So far as he placing the forgiveness of sins, uh, or is he place, uh, so far is he from placing the forgiveness of sins in the hands of a priest. Fourth, nothing is said about consecrating the oil. As you may know, there has been a ages-old argument about what the oil is doing here in James's instruction. Some have argued that since oil was widely used as a medicine in the ancient world, it means only that proper medical care should be offered even as prayer is offered. But since oil was hardly thought useful for any and every kind of illness, it's doubtful that oil is regarded here as a medicine. No doubt, as the Bible bears its own witness, believers then, too, availed themselves of what medical care was available to them. But then, as today, whether or not medicine cures, Christian prayer is to be offered. Some have argued that since the Lord Jesus sometimes anointed the sick with oil when he healed them miraculously, Matthew chapter 6, verse 13 mentions that, of course, sometimes he used used his saliva as well. This text, coming as early as it did in the first century, to them suggests that miraculous healing is in view. I don't think this is a likely interpretation either. We have no evidence that miraculous healing was widespread, commonplace in the Christian church, 
in those early years. And more to the point, we have no evidence of it at all, separated from or without connection to the ministry of an apostle. It's often assumed by Christians that miracles were occurring frequently in many places in those years, but we actually have no evidence that such was the case. Three, I think it is much more likely that oil features here as an image, as an embodiment of prayer, as a symbolic embodiment of prayer and of the setting apart of the sick man or woman for the blessing of God. Anointing with oil was a way of visualizing the invisible anointing of the Holy Spirit and of the blessing of God. After all, James says very clearly that it is the prayer of faith, not the oil, that will heal the sick brother or sister. That is, the oil is part of the prayer. Finally, the forgiveness of sins in the case of this prayer James is talking about may or may not be a part of the prayer or a part of its answer. As James says, and if he has committed sins. In some cases, forgiveness of sins may also be involved, but not in all cases. Now, a few more details of the passage itself. It appears that the case James is envisaging is not some minor ailment, a sprained ankle or a cold, for example, as if the elders are to be summoned whenever any of us is not in tip-top condition. The elders are called to the man, not for the man to go to them, which implies that he is bedridden or at least housebound. The phrase, pray over him, also suggests that the man is confined by his illness and perhaps prostrate. The word translated, the one who is sick, in verse 15, suggests that the person is weary or fatigued. In its only other use in the New Testament, in Hebrews 12.3, it is translated, grow weary. And it's the elder's faith, not the sick man's faith, to which James draws attention, suggesting that the person himself or herself may be too weak to exercise much faith of his own or of her own. The person, in other words, is significantly, if not seriously, ill. As for the sins that might be involved in certain cases, several possibilities present themselves. It may be that the person comes to believe that the illness he is suffering is punishment for sins he has committed. The Bible certainly doesn't lead us to believe that all sickness is punishment for sin, but it certainly does teach us that it may be. Both Jesus and Paul, you remember, said as much. In such a case, the Christian may become concerned for his or her forgiveness, more concerned, in fact, for the forgiveness than for the healing of the body. This is a connection modern evangelicals have far too easily dismissed from their understanding of life. That's connection between sin and illness. Or it may be, or it may also be, that lying abed has given the person opportunity for reflection and self-examination, and as a result, he or she has become conscious 
of sins inadequately confessed, inadequately repented of. Let me finish our consideration of these two verses by saying two things. First, the elders here at Faith Presbyterian Church have been often asked to pray for those who are ill, and we have always very gladly done so. We've also very often seen those prayers answered. I remember years ago thinking every single prayer, such prayer we have prayed, was wonderfully answered. We have likewise anointed with oil as a part of that prayer. We're always ready to respond to such requests. We have even suggested such prayer to those we feel may be hesitant to ask for it. Second, while of course we don't require this, I have often had people confess their sins to me and seek prayer for their forgiveness. And your pastors here and your elders in general are always willing to hear your confessions and to pray for you and for your forgiveness. As Protestants, of course, we do not believe that you must confess your sins to a priest or a minister to secure their forgiveness. In the Word of God, you are invited and commanded to confess your sins directly to God and promised His forgiveness in return. We see that being done repeatedly throughout the Bible. In fact, nowhere in the Bible is it taught that God's people must confess their sins to a priest in order for them to be forgiven, nor do we ever see that being done. But we certainly learn here that there may be times when a believer feels the need for the prayer of others. As Richard Hooker, the great 16th century Anglican theologian, described the difference between the approach of the Protestants and that of the Catholics, we labor to instruct men in such a way that every soul which is wounded with sin may learn the way how to cure itself. They, entirely to the contrary, would make all sores seem incurable unless the priest have a hand in them. We're now to 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The specific instructions of verses 14 and 15 are now generalized. Confession and prayer are the everyday duties of Christians. They're not the prerogative of elders and they are not confined to the sick room. Now we gather from the Bible taken together that James does not mean that we are always to be confessing all of our sins to one another. He seems rather to be speaking either of our confessing to another the sins we committed against him or against her, or the general acknowledgement to one another that we are sinners and in constant need of forgiveness. There have been those in church history who have encouraged constant, explicit, and comprehensive confession of sins to many others. But the results have almost always proved the wisdom of those who have recommended against the practice. Such confessions produce either an unhealthy exhibitionism or a hypocritical sanitizing of our faults. Here the confession that James is recommending produces peace and harmony among fellow believers and a readiness to pray for one another with prayers that will prove 
effective. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Throughout his letter, James has made reference to exemplars of the faith and of the wisdom that he is recommending to us in this short book. He has mentioned Abraham and Rahab, Job, the prophets as a group, and now he mentions Elijah. It is, as you know, typical of the Bible to set before us examples to emulate, to show us what the Christian life looks like in flesh and blood. In this case, Elijah serves as an exemplar of a believer whose prayers proved powerful, powerful to produce impressive results. First, notice that the ESV has departed from the famous rendering of the King James Version, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Without boring you with the details, the ESV's rendering is more accurate. The point is not to stress how the righteous pray, but that their prayers are powerful. Now, there were plenty of righteous men and women in the Old Testament whose prayers were powerful and effective. Think of Moses or think of Hannah. Several things about Elijah commended him to James. The first is that the biblical narrative of his life and work draws attention not only to his magnificent achievements, but to his disappointments, his fears, and his spiritual failures. He could show amazing courage at one point, and skedaddle at the first hint of danger at another. He could be selfless in his concern for others on one occasion and be overcome by self-pity on another. This is everywhere the picture of the righteous man or woman in the Bible, a mixture of success and failure, of faith and doubt. Righteousness in a Christian's life never means moral perfection. So much perfection or so such perfection, cannot possibly be the prerequisite of powerful prayers. This seems to be important to James as he draws attention to the fact that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Powerful prayer does not require an almost superhuman spiritual life. Even those who are often afraid and sometimes near despair can pray powerful prayers. Secondly, Elijah is interested to James for his powerful prayers. The Old Testament narrative in 1 Kings doesn't actually say that the rain stopped in Israel because Elijah had prayed that it would. That is, however, a fair inference from 1 Kings 17, verse 1. But in other cases, too, he is presented as a man of prayer. The widow's son, remember, was raised to life again because the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. But especially on Mount Carmel, the issue is joined with the prophets of Baal, precisely at the point where their prayers are compared to Elijah's. They were to pray to Baal. Elijah would pray to Yahweh. And of course, as you know, it was Elijah's prayer that was heard, that destroyed the prophets of Baal and ended the three years of drought. 
Even in a severely depressed state of mind after Jezebel ordered his death, Elijah still remained a man of prayer. He didn't commit suicide. He asked the Lord to end his life. The Lord answered that prayer powerfully as well, however differently than Elijah no doubt had imagined. He is the perfect exemplar of a life of prayer for all of us, for people as weak in faith as you and I so often are. Thus far, the Word of God. Now, it should come as no surprise to us that James, of all men, has important things to teach us about the Christian's life of prayer. Eusebius, the 4th century church historian, quotes this from the memoirs of Hegesippus, a Jewish Christian of the mid-2nd century. Hegesippus is speaking about James. He used to enter the temple alone and was often found kneeling and imploring forgiveness for the people so that his knees became hard like a camel's from his continuing kneeling in worship of God and prayer for the people. James, in other words, has not given us teaching that he did not practice himself. Indeed, to hear that these famous verses were written by camel knees himself gives them a special power, a particular authority. Now, as it happens, we're going to be treated to the retelling of the history of Elijah on the Lord's Day evening, April 24th, as Felix Mendelssohn's Never Enough Praised Oratorio is presented. In many ways, you will be reminded by that oratorio that Elijah's life is the life and the story of prayer and of the difference that prayer makes not only in the individual believer's life, but in the world. But I'll be surprised if any one of you who were paying close attention to the text as I read it and commented on it did not wonder in the back of your mind whether you can take this teaching seriously in your own case. You've prayed for something, something precious to you, something you think God should want to give to you, something you believe should be in accordance with His will, whatever that may be, and you have not received it. You've prayed for the salvation of a loved one or a friend, perhaps for years, and the person remains as uninterested in the gospel as ever. You prayed for a spouse, for marriage, for children, for a family, and the Lord has not given such to you, even though he has said in his word, it is not good for a man or for a woman to be alone. You prayed for a better job or a different job or a certain job. And though any person's work is such a large part of his life, the Lord has not answered your prayer. You prayed for deliverance from a sin that has long bedeviled you, a sin over which you have wept many times, a sin that has darkened your relationship with God, a sin that has covered you with shame, times without number, but the Lord has not given you the victory you have pled with Him for, times without number. Or as James urges you to do here in these verses, you have prayed for health and you have remained sick. You read here of Elijah's powerful prayers and you can't help wonder why his prayers were so effective 
but yours so ineffective. Believe me when I tell you, brothers and sisters, I know of what I speak. When I speak of the trouble believers have, especially men and women who have been Christians for long years, the trouble they have taking Elijah as an example for themselves, as proof of the power of prayer. Ordinarily, when facing a text like this, when my task as a preacher is to ring the changes on the power of prayer, for that is surely James' point. Righteous men and women pack a powerful punch in their prayers. But I fear if I did that, I would leave unaddressed the actual existential condition and confusion that passages like these leave Christians in and produce in Christian hearts. Tell me honestly, if you experience that, or if it is your experience that your prayers, like Elijah's, have great power in their working. Perhaps you can, as I can, remember some prayers that packed such a punch. But what about most of your prayers? And what about your prayers of late? So without in any way pulling James' punch, for as we will see, the prayers of righteous men and women are powerfully effective, let me put James' remarks here in a larger perspective. The fact of unanswered prayer and the reality of it as a challenge to faith are faced repeatedly in the Bible. It is not as if we hear only of how powerful and effective the prayers of the righteous are. We often witness the saints' confusion and we hear their complaint, even their near despair when prayers so sincerely and so long offered are not answered, when what seems to them, as we read in the Elijah history, that the heavens are as brass above them. There are a great many psalms that are, in fact, the cries of faithful men to the Lord because, precisely because, they have prayed and He has not answered. And in many cases there in the Psalter and elsewhere in the Bible, we're actually told what their prayers were that proved to be of no effect. Think, for example, of David, who prayed for the life of his illegitimate son, but was refused. David was required to suffer for his sin with Bathsheba, and the loss of his son was partial payment on that suffering. Or think of Jeremiah who prayed for the repentance and spiritual restoration of his contemporaries in Judah and who was told flatly by the Lord that though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn toward these people. Or consider the Apostle Paul who pled over and over again that the Lord would remove his thorn in the flesh and was refused and was told instead, my grace is sufficient for you. Or think of the Lord Jesus in Gethsemane, praying that the cup might be removed for him, from him, a prayer prayed by the most righteous man who ever lived. There was never any question about his righteousness, but one which was not powerful and effective in the terms in which it was offered. Even in the cases James mentions here, 
we're perfectly aware of the distinct possibility that such prayer will not be answered. The sick do not always recover. Indeed, sometimes it has happened that someone has asked us to anoint him or her with oil and offer such prayer for healing, such prayer as James describes here, when it is perfectly obvious that the Lord has already determined that the person should die. I sometimes remind medical doctors when I'm calling in the hospital that they lose all of their patients eventually, whereas I never lose most of mine. So any reader of the Bible knows, when he reads James here, that we're not being told that any and every prayer we pray will be answered in the terms in which it is offered. Second, there are reasons why our prayers may not be answered given in the Bible itself. So much is unanswered prayer a reality in the life of faith that the Bible frequently prepares us to consider carefully why our prayers might not have been heard and answered. Indeed, James himself has mentioned some possible reasons why prayer might not be heard even as he talks about effectual prayer at the end of his letter. In chapter 1, verse 5, he taught us that double-mindedness is fatal to effective prayer. What he meant, we said then, is prayer for the blessing of God by a man or woman who is unwilling to make a whole-souled commitment to the Lord and His kingdom, who wishes to keep one foot planted in the world. In chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, he taught us that prayer motivated by sinful desires and passions will not prove powerful and effective. Long before, in Psalm 66, verse 18, God's people knew to say, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. A person who sows his wild oats during the week and then comes to church on Sunday to pray for crop failure should not expect his prayers to be powerful or effective. But there are a number of other reasons as well. We've already mentioned that God may have other plans for our lives than we expect or know anything of. Or that He requires us to do without something we greatly desire precisely to accomplish some good purpose He has for us or for others. In any case, as the Lord Himself reminded us in the very Sermon on the Mount that James alludes to so often in this letter, we do not pray because God does not know what we want or what we need unless we tell Him. 3 James 5.13-18 are typical of the Bible's way of making unqualified and absolute statements in regard to prayer, the qualification and relativizing of which statements are found in other places of the Bible. This is called marismus. It attaches to almost all of the Bible's teaching, in which we get part of it here, part of it there. Marismus comes from the Greek word maros, meaning part. The promise that our prayers will be powerful and effective, that they will pack a punch, is found in both chapter 1, verse 5, and chapter 5, 13 to 18. But as you know, it is found in many other places in the Bible as well. The Lord Jesus himself made promises about prayer in just this absolute way. If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. That's Matthew 18, 19. 
or whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. That's John 14, 13. Clearly, the unqualified nature of such promises is meant to encourage us to believe in the power of prayer. But just as surely, it must be obvious that God did not hand over the running of the universe to us when he promised to hear and answer our prayers. Knowing as little as we know about what we need in order to get ourselves to heaven or others to heaven, having a view of ourselves and of our lives that is so often galactically inaccurate, having no idea what purposes God is pursuing in the circumstances of our lives, I don't think you or, or I have any idea how much harm we could do to ourselves or to others if God were obliged to answer every prayer we prayed in the terms in which it was offered. We are certainly never taught in the Bible or led to believe that we have a right to expect that God will give us whatever we ask of Him. From the very beginning of direct and divine revelation to us about life in the world, the distance that separates God and God's plans and purposes from our grasp of those plans and purposes is said to be infinitely great. A mystery attaches to God's ways that the Bible itself teaches unapologetically we will never penetrate. That he has promised to hear and answer our prayers is the emphatic teaching of the Word of God. But so is the fact that his ways are far above us and past finding out. To imagine that God must give us whatever we ask for would not only penetrate that mystery, it would dispel it completely. That will never happen. God being God and we being merely his creatures. It's often helpful for us to use our imagination to visualize the situation that is being described to us in the Word of God. Suppose you still want and hope for the thing you have so long prayed for but not yet received from your Heavenly Father. And suppose one night the Lord Jesus Himself appeared in your room with His divine glory upon Him and he came and sat by your bedside and he said to you, You have asked for this, but the Father will not give it to you. He cannot. The reason why, I cannot tell you. But I can assure you that it is better for you and for your loved ones that you be refused than that you should receive what you have sought from your Heavenly Father's hand and heart. Would you complain? Would you doubt that the Lord was telling you the truth? Would you demand some further explanation as your right? Of course not. You would say, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. And you would also say, Shall we receive good from God and shall not we receive evil or though the Lord slay me I will hope in him magnificent expressions of faith and love that would never have been uttered 
if the Lord always gave his children what they asked for when they asked for it. Our entire faith as Christians rests in the character of God as invariably, unchangeably wise and loving toward us, his children. So our life of prayer, which is part of that faith, must rest on that same foundation and that same confidence. How many stories can the saints tell, like Amy Carmichael's, who as a young girl, a young woman, so envied her mother's blue eyes that she prayed that God would turn her eyes blue. Only much later in India did she realize that having brown hair and brown eyes, unusual in her family, allowed her, when dressed like an Indian woman, to look like an Indian woman. And that, in turn, allowed her to enter the temples where foreigners with blue eyes would never have been permitted to go in order to find and to carry away the little girls who had been sold into sexual service there. How much wiser God must be than we are in a million such ways. But we don't end here. We end with what James has said so emphatically to us in these verses we read this evening. The prayer of the righteous has great power. Whether or not we always receive that for which we prayed, whether or not our prayers are answered in the same terms in which they were offered, they have great power. Sometimes, of course, as in Elijah's case, we get precisely what we ask for. I suspect this is true far more of the time than you or I actually realize. Whether we're praying for the forgiveness of our sins or the forgiveness of the sins of others or for someone's health or for his or her blessing in some other way, we are so forgetful of the prayers that we've prayed, we so often fail to reckon with their outcome. But our prayers, no doubt, have great power even when they remain, so far as we can tell, unanswered. God, our loving Father, listens to our cries, and I'm sure if He cannot, in His wisdom and love, give us what we have asked for, He blesses us and helps us in other ways to compensate for our disappointment. Always remember this. It was the Lord Jesus who went to the cross for us who promised to hear and answer our prayers. Is it conceivable that he misled us? It is not. And it was Camel Knees himself who reminded us that the prayers of the righteous have great power. Does anyone dare to contradict that man? Let me finish with this piece of wisdom from Thomas Boston, a very wise man, also a faithful praying man. There are many prayers not to be answered till we come to the other world. And there, all will be answered at once. Amen.